0: I was going to devote this to the Blood Libel in Modern Times, which is the last title, which really involves four, maybe even five, very famous, sad, but very famous episodes in much more recent times about the Blood Libel. Was the 1800s and 1900s, and I started to go to the first one. By the time I finished it, I said, this is a whole talk by itself. I'm not going to keep you here six hours. For me, the trouble is never not giving you enough. It's always giving you too much. And so... I'm going to confine my remarks to perhaps the most famous, or certainly as far as the Middle East is concerned, as you'll see before I'm finished tonight, uh, sadly, the most uh, famous of the uh, modern blood libels, the ones that had the most traction. I mean, literally down till today. Uh, but as I say, by the time I'm done, you'll see uh, where I'm going. How's it? Uh, can I start? I've talked to my. Okay. Are we okay? Yeah. You see, well, first of all, let's thank the Shoal for doing all six. And second of all, let's thank these guys <laughs> over here for doing all six. <laughs> so those who, who will be named are those who will not be named, who prefer not to be named. Uh, with that, I'll, I'll jump into the body of my remarks. And then the, uh, the first or the only one we're going to deal with tonight is the very, what's called the Damascus Affair, which is a blood libel. It's a, a little stomp. In 1840, which uh, made world headlines at that time, and it's a remarkable story to make a heck of a movie, set against a background of international politics and intrigue, and I mean that in the fullest sense of the word. The uh, background, of this 1840, is the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which once upon a time was huge, but by the time you get to the 1800s, especially the period we we're talking about, was in decline. It used to call Turkey, memory, memory, you might remember. Remember this from your high school uh, test, the sick man of Europe. Um, and that's because the Turkish Empire, very Islamic, was not up with the technology, and they didn't have the kind of culture that could keep up with their technology. And The only thing they could do was try to copy the technology coming out of Europe. And in the military field, it means the Turkish army is falling behind. You understand? Turks are very good soldiers, but they technologically fell behind. And so the result is they started losing territory right and left. And uh, in the context of this, for our story, the big uh, tale, and let's go to the first one over here, uh, is the uh, decline of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. The sultan in in Istanbul doesn't count so much. And one of his governors went into business for himself, Mehmed Ali over here, who uh, was an Albanian, not an Arab. Uh, Albania, I don't know if you know this or not, is a Muslim country. The Turks moved a bunch of Muslims there long, long ago when the Turks conquered this back in the 1300s, 1400s. Um, this is one of the problems we have in Europe today with the ethnicities. And he was in the Turkish army. And perhaps you will recall that Napoleon, in one of his campaigns in 1799, conquered Egypt at a single blow, but then had to pull out because the British chased him out. And then the Turks sent an army to take Egypt back over again. And this guy was one of the officers, and he rose to the top through ruthlessness. He bumped off this guy and that guy. He did like Yehu in the Bible. He called all the mamelukes into a party and killed them. You know? not get better than that in the Arab culture. And he was an extremely capable ruler. Once he took over and killed everybody, then he ran the country very successfully and built Egypt into a modern state, or as close as you can get to it in the Islamic context in the 19th century. He was a great uh, ruler, created modern Egypt, um, military, uh, bureaucracy, civil service, Canals, roads, trade, all those sorts of things, and he did it very simply by importing European specialists in all these fields, and you had to listen to him, or else he'd kill you, you know, so in other words, uh, he got things done, and Egypt moved miles ahead in terms of its technological progress ahead of Turkey, and Egypt was supposed to be a province of Turkey, you already start to see... we have the Turkish empire tottering and this particular governor who would be a much better sultan in terms of ability just being confined to Egypt so you understand where things are going over here. Um, In this particular case he um, was originally a governor under Turkey of course and he owed them official allegiance and he conducted some very successful wars on their behalf. I'll just tell you one very interestingly here we're having trouble today with all the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia. He had that at that time also, and the Turks didn't know what to do, and they sent him in. He wiped him out okay, in two campaigns. So I'll say it again. He conquered Mecca and Medina and all this kind of stuff. Yes, with the Egyptian army, because they were trained by modern European officers and all this sort of thing, and he hanged the uh, heads of the Wahhabis, and he put them back for a century. Now, he was a very uh, tough and capable uh, type of individual, and he did a lot of uh, favors. So you see the Turkish Empire over there is that's at its nominal uh, length, which is quite large. But a lot of these provinces were semi-independent, as you can see. As the the center, Istanbul, I don't have my uh, laser pointer, but if if you maybe notice where the Black Sea is, uh, got weaker and weaker in the provinces, and sometimes got stronger. And uh, what happened very specifically, I'll just go this for a minute. You see where Greece is? In the lower part. So Greece uh, d- uh, went for a war of independence against Turkey in the 1820s. That's where Lord Byron died, and uh, the Turks couldn't stop the Greeks. They were, they were, the, the army was incompetent, and so they called in Mehmed Ali and his son Ibrahim Pasha. We'll see, with famous. These are famous generals of the old days, and they crushed the Turks for a while. And in return, Mehmed Ali said, "I guess. So what do I get out of this? I mean, I saved." maybe the right, I can't say the word, I saved your bacon if it's the Turkish Empire, but I saved your bacon for, for, for the Wahhabis and for this revolt and for the Greeks and the others. What do I get out of this, you understand? And the Turks kept promising them things like this and they didn't pay off and so the end is he just seized Palestine and Syria in 1831, 1832. It's very famous, his son, who was a very great general, Ibrahim Pasha, uh, well-known in those days, he, very capable, he conquered uh, in a war what we call today Eretz Yisrael and whole Syria. And there are many Jewish accounts, by the way, of this era. And the Jews kind of looked up to Ibrahim Pasha because he brought in law and order. Before that, under the Turks, there was a lot of hefkeris, highway robbery, literally. Uh, The Druze used to run around and kill people. That's why you had to live in a walled city. When Ibrahim Pasha came in, it was law and order the old fashioned way. You know, somebody commits a crime, you hang them and all their relatives. And so he put it it down and, now it means that Egypt controls quite an area. It's Egypt plus Syria and uh, Lebanon and Israel and Jordan today. And what's left for Turkey? You understand? Now, as Turkey totters, the great powers of Europe ponder what to do. Uh, the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas, Lord Palmerston, we will seen him in England, Prince Metternich, these are the great European statesmen. And they're looking over like, how do we share the, the flesh? You understand? Uh, they're all afraid that as Turkey totters, Russia will take it all over, which they could do. And so what began was called the Eastern Question, or the Great Game, in which it's balance of power politics, in which some people support Turkey, some people try to knock it out. Every time, they try to take, every time the Russians want to take it over, the British put a coalition together to block the Russians. Eventually, this led to a war called the Crimean War, in which Russia was defeated by the British. That's an important thing to remember, as you'll see in a minute. And um, the great statesman of those days, of that time, the 1830s and 40s, was indeed the Tsar of Russia. Uh, Lord Palmerston, who will, who will become acquainted with quite well tonight, um, in, of, of England, and uh, Metternich, who was the Austrian chancellor, ran all of Central Europe. Now, Palmerston was a heck of a guy. He was the foreign minister for 25 years under Queen Victoria and then the prime minister in the age when England ruled the roost, or they certainly ruled the oceans. No one had a navy even near them, and they knew it, and Palmerston was a t- John Bull, they call it, you know, he says, if I feel like uh, insulting you and knocking things, you your right. what are you going to do about it? You want to have a war? Let's have a war. And the other countries were afraid, because England's crazy enough to go to war over something that's not even a national uh, interest. Sometimes, European countries traditionally don't, don't go to war unless it's absolutely necessary. That's traditional. But England could do it at the drop of the head, and, and Palmerston was the guy to do it, and when people called him a war- war- warmonger, he says, damn right I'm a warmonger, and the, and the public cheered him, you see, so Queen Victoria didn't know what to do because he he, read a, a, he led a very, uh, what shall I say, playboy type of life. But the, and that wasn't Queen Victoria or Albert. But on the other hand, he was incredibly popular and very successful as the uh, British leader over here. And here you have a classic story. Let's go to the next one. Read this. The British love that sort of thing, you understand? Yeah, the Frenchman says, if I was a Frenchman, I would like to be an Englishman. I was, if I was an Englishman, I would like to be an Englishman. Meaning, he's pure English. They're God's gift to the earth. Obviously, God speaks English in heaven all the rest of it. This is the time when the, when the British Empire, you know, the sun did not set, on the British Empire. And they were ready to tell everybody when to get off. And the countries of Europe always had to reckon with this. And this guy had the control. He was the foreign secretary for decades from one prime minister to another, and later he was the prime minister himself, so he was quite a guy. Now, um, in 1839, this, this very tempestuous decade that I just started, remember, the Egyptian seized Syria and Israel and Palestine in the 1830s. 1830. So in 1839, Mehmed Ali of Egypt wanted to declare independence. He said, Gnugshan, the Ottoman Empire is a joke. I'm something. I have a big army and all the rest of it. They're, they're, they're nothing. Let me go and end, and, and say like this. All the money you owe me, all the rest of it, let's just do the following. I'll go independent, declare my own country, I'll cancel all the debts that you owe me, and all the money, and I get to keep Syria and Palestine. The Ottoman Empire said no. And the Sultan sent an army. And the Sultan sent an army, Ibrahim Pasha wiped it out at the Battle of Konya in, uh, in the middle of Anatolia. So if you look at the, at the arrow on the right there, and you see, that, in other words, uh, where that goes, where it says Konya, that's smack in the middle of the heart of Turkey. When he destroyed the Ottoman army there, he could go to Istanbul and take it all over. You understand? No, no one expected this. And that set off a European crisis, okay, uh, because, will Muhammad Ali take over the Middle East? Will he back per- to Empire? What is Russia going to do about this? What's Austria going to What's England and France going to do about this? That's what I say it was the power politics of the old days. At that point, Britain and France send in the navies. All this is no to our story, as you'll see. And in other words, Palmerston sent the British fleet, the French sent their fleet in, which was no comparison. And Mehmed Ali was scared. And basically, they said, like, don't take over Turkey or, or mess with us. You see, he was afraid of the following. 10 years, earlier, 12 years earlier, when he intervened in the Greek war and he was wiping out the Greeks, he, he at great expense, for 10 years, he put together a huge navy getting all the European officers to teach him how to do it. They had a big Egyptian navy, modern ships, and all that stuff. And it was superbly trained. And then when the British said, maybe you should get out of Greece, he said, no, they wiped out the fleet. <laughs> Sent the whole thing to the bottom. The Battle of Navarino, okay, which is a famous uh, battle. In other words, the, the British would want to, no, you do <laughs> you're minor leagues. You don't mess with the major leagues over here. And uh, it, was, it was a very famous sort of thing. Uh, incidentally, this is when Moses Montefiore first became famous because he happened to be visiting Eretz Yisrael at this time, and on his way back, and the, and the, f- the very first time we'll talk about him in a minute when he and his wife Judas, uh, in the 1820s, well, P- uh, civilized Europeans didn't go to Palestine. It was disease, it was robbery, it was absolute lack of security. Uh, it was like Gaza or something, you know. And uh, and he and he went. You know, Montefiore was a millionaire. We'll talk about it in a second, and he therefore hired special guards and all that sort of thing. Uh, he went to Hebron, by the way, in 1827, they, and they were going to beat him up. They, was, they tried to attack him, but he had Turkish guards that beat up the beater-uppers. It's quite, it quite a story. And he was on his way back to England, and meanwhile he's passing by. They, j- they just had the Battle of Navarino, and they wanted to get the, the, the news as quickly as possible in England, and Montefiore I'm on my way anyway, so the admiral gave him, gave him the uh, news. So he had this chutz, if you want, that his ship was the first one to arrive in London and bring the news to, to the British government, which uh, was a, a feather in his cap. So all we can say is that the British fleet, during the time I'm speaking about, remained somewhere in the eastern Mediterranean, right off the coast of Akko and uh, Lebanon and those kind of places. And everybody knows the British fleet is not something you mess with. In the midst of all this crisis and international intrigue, a French Catholic priest in Damascus disappears he had been threatened a month earlier by a Muslim who called him a dog and said, "I'll kill you as a dog." Father Thomas, the guy with the beard, on the right. Anyway, um, so he was a French Catholic priest. At this time, there were a lot of uh, European, what shall I say, Christian sects and groups that were represented in uh, Syria and in Israel and in Palestine. After all, I don't have to tell you that's where the New Testament takes place. There's a lot of churches and things like that. And who done it? What happened to him? Now, I just told you, the real circumstantial evidence is the Muslim guy who didn't like him so I'll get you, probably did it. Mm-hmm. But there's no body. The local French consul, as you understand, France has an ambassador in, Constant- in Istanbul, but in all the important cities, they have consuls, like sm- uh, smaller diplomats. The, the French consul in Damascus, which is an important city, is named Ulysses de Ratimontont. Ratimontont. He's the worst type of French Catholic. In France, especially in the 1800s, and we're not finished with it today, uh, there's always been a right and a left. And the left embraced the French Revolution, and the right thought the French Revolution was the worst thing ever happened. And the right, usually what they call the ultramontane super-Catholics, which in the, not today, but in the 1800s, very anti-Semitic. Okay? Now this guy maybe wasn't as bad as some of the others, but that's his social background. He's a buddy of the local governor of Damascus, who still governs for Mehmed Ali. So look how complicated this is. It had. This, this disappearance happens in Damascus, which is of course is in Syria, which at that moment is occupied by the Egyptians, but is claimed by the Turks. And the British have a fleet off the shore to enforce for the Egyptians to get out, the Turks to take back in. It's like, I got you Okay? <laughs> but by the way, I want to tell you something. It's nothing changed. If you go to somebody who's not following the Middle East and say, what's happening? He say, well, there's Hamas, and there's Gaza, and there's... You know, you know it already. It would be a Chagad Yot to them. So anyway, in the midst of all this, this happens, and, he go, and the, and the uh, British kind of want to kick Mehmed Ali out of there totally and might blow him up. The French want to keep him in for their personal reasons. And so the governor of Damascus is pro-French. And so when this French consul goes and says... Uh, what happened? A French uh, national, a Catholic priest, disappeared. I think the Jews did it, and I want you to empower me to go back to the Middle Ages and arrest everybody and have a torture trial. The guys, that go for it. You see? So we've seen here, if you've, many of you have been here in the previous lectures, you were never able to get a judicial verdict in favor of a blood libel without torture. Now, the Russians tried it, remember the Bayless case. In other cases, you're not going to get a confession because it doesn't happen. You see, and so here, even though it's 1840, uh, it will suspend the rules because of a local peculiar situation. And so the Arab governor, the Egyptian governor, permits the French consul monton to raid the Jewish quarter of Damascus to search for the courts, unsuccessfully, to arrest a bunch of Jews and torture them into confessing. A confession was extorted by torture from a Jewish barber named Negrin and eight of the most notable Jews in Damascus, Yosef Lanyado, Abu Lafia, Rabbi Yaakov Antebi, who wrote Charles and Tubas, and a number of the member of the Farhi family all were imprisoned and tortured. Their teeth and their beards were pulled out. They were burned and finally tempted with gold to persuade them to confess to an imaginary crime. Lanyado, a feeble old man, died under treatment. Moses Abu Lafia became a Muslim in order to escape the torture. You can't blame him. And in spite of the stoic courage displayed by the sufferers, the Arab governor, the Sharif Pasha, and Ratimantan, the Frenchman, agreed to the trumped up charges. Meaning, they got some of these guys to confess using what they call the bastinado. And that's a good old torture where you hang somebody up, take off their shoes, and you whack them the, on the feet over and over again with sticks until and it hurts. So, in spite of the stoic courage displayed by the sufferers, they agreed, the Frenchman and the other guy, to the trumped-up charges that the Jews did in order to use the blood from Azzam. When Rati Monton published libels against the Jews in French and in Arabic, the Sharif Pasha, the governor, wrote to his master, Mehmed Ali, the Egyptian ruler, demanding authorization to execute the murders of Father Thomas. Because I told you the Egyptian regime was a law and order, one, and therefore you you can't kill somebody without getting permission from, from Cairo, from Alexandria. In the meantime, the Arabs, the population, fell upon the synagogue in the suburb of Jobar, known as the Big Shul in Damascus. They pillaged it, destroyed the Saber Torahs. What else is new? This happened a couple uh, weeks ago in Damascus, as you follow the news. When more confessions seemed to requ- be required, 63 Jewish children were arrested and tortured to get their parents to confess. Think about that. You know, the little kids, which they do in front of the parents, it's like, if you won't confess, I'll torture your child to death. So it's really rough. As it happened... The Austrian consul, not the French consul, the Austrian consul in Damascus was a Jew named Elio Peshatto, a relative of one of the victims. That victim had the good fortune of being an Austrian citizen. Because the Peshatto family, which by the way, some of them were in Philadelphia and they were big machers in, in the administration of Ulysses S. Grant, believe it or not. Um, you know, they started the B'nai B'rith in America. So they're a, obviously a Sephardic family, you know, from the real Sephardic and uh, they're all over the place, and they were connected with Rothschild and things like this. So one of them, one of the guys they arrested happened to be a citizen of Austria, which meant that the Austrian government has the right to say what's going on over here. Mm-hmm. Not that the Austrian government is such a when it comes to the Jews, but you know how it goes. To my Jews, I'm not saying, but to the Jews overseas, you you, you insulted one of my friends, you see. And so um, Peshatto quickly ran to Egypt to Ibrahim Pasha, the son of uh, Mehmed Ali, the famous guy, and... Uh, and uh, Ibrahim Pasha, as I told you, was famous for stern law and order and justice. And Ibrahim Pasha ordered a full investigation. He said, if this is involving a foreign citizen, we got enough trouble on our hands with, Ru- with Russia and England and France. I don't know if you have Austria involved in this also. So I want to find out what happened. Because even he would say like this, is it really true that the Jews murdered a French priest in order to use the blood to make matzah? I mean, is, is, is that really true? Um, and meanwhile, the Israeli Jews, if I can use this term, some Jews married to throw especially uh, Yisrael Beck appeals to Mehmed Ali to stop the torture, and he stopped it. And it was a Jew who came to Alexandria, and he used the old-fashioned way of begging and appealing and paying off somebody to get to the ruler and say like this, please stop the torture that's going on over there. Um, his name was Yisrael Beck, which is the same name as my son-in-law now, because it's his grandfather. You know, they go from Nisimbek, what they call it, the Nisimbek shul. Now, uh, meanwhile, word travels to Europe. Okay, it would. And in Paris... The French government backs Rettimontant. You understand what I'm saying? The official French government in 1840 says the Jews killed this guy in order to cut him up, take the blood, and use it for matzah. The French government. Um, Rothschild, there was a Rothschild in Paris named the Rothschild, and a very important person, as you might imagine. He goes to talk to the prime minister, Edouard Thiers. Thiers was a very famous Frenchman in the 19th century, uh, famous, uh, a famous writer and a politician, uh, you know, a highly educated person. And he said, what the heck is going on over here? And chair says, listen, I didn't see a Jew like you do. it in France, they're more civilized. But we all know in the Orient, they have a low level of culture. And probably over there, the Jews do kill. In other words, even a guy, like I've been trying to tell you across the times, don't tell me somebody's modern, educated, all the rest of it. They, they, they observe it with the mother's milk. So even though he's a post-revolutionary, Guy, and he's, uh, as I say before, you know, very westernized. I mean, for crying out loud, he's the prime minister of France. Uh, he totally buys into the idea that they're Jews, I didn't say all the Jews, not my friend, not my neighbor, not James Rothschild, but those Jews over there, it's totally possible and totally believable. And after all, they confessed. Now, you say, so what kind of confession is torture? You know, when you want to believe it, then you do like they say, Kofa knows how and it's, to- it's what you really believe. And so it's, uh, got- it was very uh, disappointing. The French Jews cower as has been the case until very recently. It's very interesting. Right now, as we speak, I know you follow the news, under all the relentless pressure of this Islamic demonstrations that attacking synagogue, the French Jews are going through a crisis of can they continue to cower or run away to Israel or fight? But at that time, they were very scared, uh, except for one guy. And that was Adolphe Cremieux, who was a famous person of yesteryear. He was a French Jew, French, 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 his family was from Avignon, from way back when. And uh very interesting person, super not religious, he was a, a leading prop- proponent of uh, the, reforming the, the Jewish religion in the 19th century, but was a Yiddish Yid. he became a very brilliant lawyer, and he, f- among other things, he fought for, for Jewish civil rights. Now I want to tell you something, he also fought for black civil rights. He is the French Abraham Lincoln. He's the guy that got France to abolish the black slavery. Just so you should know it, because you hear Farrakhan, all these guys say, the Jews are the slavery. It's the opposite. <laughs> you understand? But... Um, and he, as I say, and he uh, fought when the other French Jews used to say, shah, still don't make any noise. He fought against all the discrimination the Jews still suffered under French law. For example, they still kept the old Jewish oath, which says if you had to swear in court, he says, I swear, if, if I'm telling, it's like a Mishapari, you know, if, I, if I'm telling something falsely, then the, the fate of Karach should befall him, and, uh, you know, he should drown, like, I don't know, Pharaoh in the sea, and all these kind of Very insulting, which a regular Frenchman didn't have to do, and he got rid of it. And he later on became a big minister in the government. He, if you look him up, you'll see he was uh, basically the most famous French Jew of the 19th century. And uh, so he was completely assimilated. But on the other hand, he was a Jewish Jew, and he's not going to stand for any monkey business. The Jews of Damascus, right, deserve justice, he says. Not more, not less. This is before Zolo. You understand? Now, everybody says, like, as you're saying, because you're a Jew, you're coming up for them. And he says, I am not. And I can prove it in court, so to speak. He's like a Dershowitz. You know, he says, you want to do it? Make my day. Let's go and um, he got no traction in France because the government was more interested in believing it, and Thiers and the French government and the king of France at that time said, if our consul said it, we back him because France is loyal to its uh, diplomats, they must be telling the truth because they're French, and, uh, and so forth. Meanwhile, news got to London, and uh, not only to Paris. With London, you weren't dealing with James Ross he said Montefiore, so Mo- Moses Montefiore. This is when he was starting off his, his career for Claudius Yisrael. Montefiore was born in Italy, but uh, he ended up living most of his life in London, where he became a millionaire, multimillionaire, millionaire And uh, he was the most famous Jew who was extremely orthodox. That is, he didn't know anything, but he was very punctilious in his, his observance, thanks to his wife, and was very highly admired in, in, in England. It's a very unusual uh, story over here. And uh, Matveev was basically considered like you know, he was the he was the address of the Jewish people. If, if Jews were in trouble somewhere, they write to London to, to Matveev, you know, maybe he could do something about it. And he immediately goes to inform Palmerston, who is the Foreign Secretary. And he's the Iron Man of the British government. Now, P- Palmerston and Matveev are two very different types. One guy was a total playboy and all the rest of it. Matveev was the opposite, and yet they're very good friends. It's very it's very interesting. I'll even go so far to say that Palmerston profoundly admired Montefiore. It's, it's the most unusual uh, relationship that they had over there, and it was very good for the Jews. And, um, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go even farther. Here you have this weird guy, uh, Lord Palmerston, who stands at the head of the British Empire, and he had a lot of you know, He, he uh, often went against the stream, and he fought for unpopular causes, uh, but on the other hand, he was very reactionary in many areas, and he switched parties, and the Queen couldn't stand him, and the Duke of Walling couldn't, couldn't stand him. And as I said before, he was unfaithful to everybody. He liked Jews. <laughs> go figure it out. It's part of his contrary nature. You know see, he liked Jews. I would even go so far as to say that starting with starting with Palmerston, it's a straight line from Palmerston to the Balfour Declaration. If you know your British history, yeah, he was the the, the British statesman who said we should. That's the right thing to help the Jews. And Ingl- by the way, England could do it. They could do whatever they wanted, you see. So he says, it's the right thing to help the Jews. Look at the Old. I know we've got the New Testament. We should also look at the Old Testament. And from his time on, um, the British government was of great help to the Jews, particularly in Palestine and places like that under the Turks. If you- Now's not the time to go into the details. But they helped them in a lot of different ways. And uh, they British did it because they could. Now, uh, I want you to understand. In London, the London Times and all the liberal press believed the blood libel. All the just like today, you've got CNN, you got the New York Times. You say, how can people who are educated come and, and, and believe all this malarkey? But they do, okay? Because it's not what you uh, figure out analytically. You analyze what you feel in your guts. You apply your analytical. So they're anti-Semitic. That's that's a fact. And uh, the only thing is like this: if there's a guy who couldn't give a darn about what the press says, as Palmerston, this was his stock and trade. You know, if the press is against me, good, <laughs> I'll crush him and uh, that's very, very classic and I can tell you uh, this is one of the most famous cases to give an example of what I'm talking about Palmerston almost went to war I mean, he was ready to go to war against Greece when they insulted a British Jew there was a guy named Don Pacifico uh, David Pacifico which is Shalom who was from Gibraltar almost Gibraltar Gibraltar means you're a British subject correct? you know that Gibraltar is a little place but if you're born there you're a subject of the Queen and he was a businessman and he was in Athens and, uh, you know, he was well-to-do. And in 1848, this is a little bit later, Rothschild uh, from London visited Greece because the government wanted to negotiate a loan. And the government, in order to flatter us, it was in April, which around Easter time. And so in, in, in Athens, they used to have big, uh, what shall I say, uh, re- uh, reenactments of the, crucif- the crucifixion and so forth, like Mel Gibson, you know, and especially the Judas uh, play, which was very popular. Judas being a Jew, who betrayed Christ for 20 uh, pieces of silver. And the Greek government, in order to flatter or Rothschild, because they want to get money out of this guy, so uh, they said they're going to cancel the Judas play. And, the, and the, the Greek crowds, as we know today, you follow the news, they're anti Semitic, they all rioted. And they uh, uh, tore in the Jewish neighborhood, what else is New, and they burned down this guy's house with a lot of Skyrim uh, and with a lot of merchandise, this Pacifico guy. And uh, he wasn't taking it. And so he went to England and he complained to the British court. And he said, you know, I got ripped off by the friend, and, I, and I, I'm suing a Greece. You know, like you read now, some of these guys sued, uh, was it Syria and Libya for, for, what am I talking about, the airlines? Yeah, the airlines that were suing Iran. So he's the first guy who started it. And he won a judgment in the British court. You know, so many thousands, tens of thousands of pounds, I don't know. And Greece said, the heck with you. And Palmer said, the heck with Greece. He said, the British Navy, they're in the blockade in Athens. You understand? And, and Russia and France, you can look this up. Russia and France, it's like, if you can't do this unilaterally, all the rest of it, this will lead to war. Palmer says, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and they backed off. And Greece paid. You understand? And, and when this happened, he was roundly assaulted in the House of Commons. In the House of Lords. You know, how can you be so uh, cavalier in your foreign policy, to get England involved, especially over a Jew, and over a and this and that and the other, and to give a five-hour speech. It's a very famous speech in British history. Uh, five hours. Um, which, which Queen Victoria said, I guess, how did you have the vigor to speak straight without notes for five hours? And the Israelis said, how did you not go to the bathroom for five hours? <laughs> <laughs> it's a famous story. So, Palmerston ended by a famous reference to the New Testament, St. Paul where, not that you should necessarily know your New Testament, but at one point, St. Paul is arrested by the Roman police. But he wasn't just a Jew. He happened to be a Roman citizen. And if you're a Roman citizen is habeas corpus, you can't get arrested stamazoi, right? It's just like you have to read you your rights, and you get the right to an attorney, all the way. Right. They had that in Rome. And so it's very famous that when St. Paul said, Chivas Romanus Sum, I am a citizen of Rome. He's entitled to all the protection of law. So I say, as the Roman days of old, as the Roman in the days of old, held himself free from indignity when he could say "Chibis Ramonism," a British subject, in whatever land he may be, shall feel confident that the watchful eye and the strong arm of England will protect him from injustice and wrong. And the whole House of Commons went down, and he won. And he said to the Sunday Times, <clears throat> "You know," <laughs> and this was and this, and they used, and they, and he was the hero of all the pubs. You understand? There's there's, there's cartoons of this and sort of. So he was quite quite, quite a guy, and he did, it was, he was ready to go to war over too. So I'm just trying to tell you as say, fingers. And so basically, I'll tell you one thing. The whole world felt that the Jews did it because they wanted to. And the whole world felt that the Jews are guilty and the torture merely got them to say what they what they wanted to really say. Except Palmerston. It's very interesting. And Moses Montefiore went to him. Uh, they had a, a uh, as I say before, a very interesting relation. I gotta share this with you. There's a uh Moses Montefiore, among other things, was super rich. Therefore, he was the head of the British uh, Board of Deputies and that sort of thing, You know all the leading official British Jewish bodies, as they were at that time. And the British Jews did not have civil rights. They had toleration, but they didn't get full civil rights until a little bit later. And that's when reformed Judaism started in England, very small. And the law that had been written in England long before in the 1700s in Parliament was that the chief rabbi in charge of a chubba you can't get married, like in Israel, you can't get married unless it's solemnized by the chief rabbi or one of his delegated uh, rabbis, and you can't get divorced unless same way, unless it's delegated by the rabbis. The Reform said, we want to do our own marriages and divorces and things like that. And Montevideo said, no, the law forbids it. And so, there was an agitation already in the 1830s to change the law to make it fit to the new reality that there's Orthodox Judaism as before Judaism. And Montefiore said, no, and he lobbied and all that he used his power, they shouldn't have it. And, and Palmerston, at that particular point with the prime minister, he said, what's going on? We got, you know, <laughs> you're bringing the whole England to Jewish politics, <laughs> into the board meeting, you know, and uh, Palmerston called the Reform and the Orthodox with Montefiore and David Wolf Marx. That's the next one. The guy at the bottom was the head of Reform into the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. Like, like Obama, he said, can't you guys make peace or something like that? Obama, and Montefiore said, no. <laughs> You understand? And Palmerston, who, re- who liked him, is famous. He said, The meeting took place, and Lord Palmerston asked Sir Moses why he objected to certified a new congregation. It's not Orthodox, said Montefiore. Whereupon Lord Palmerston said, Sir Moses, we cannot maintain Orthodoxy in the Church of England. Why should you expect to be able to do so in the synagogue? <laughs> and so he reasoned about finally, you know, Montefiore, much against his will, you know, kind of gave in. But that was the kind of relationship that they had. So, uh, uh, which, by, by the way, was Minister in That was a good thing. It was a good thing because the poor schnooks in Damascus had nobody on their side. This you have to keep in mind as we go through tonight. Montefiore asked Palmerston to back him up. He said, I want justice done for my people. And, Montefiore, and Palmerston said, I will do so. And he writes official letters to all the British the consuls and ambassadors and admirals in the, in, in the Near East. You back up Montefiore. Okay. Now, it's very famous. Therefore, Montefiore put together a whole expedition. He went with his wife, the very famous lady Judith Montefiore, right? Who is a very uh, famous person. I cannot forbear. If you want to know who she is, I'm going to tell you a story which is very famous, but you just never heard of it. And it's and because it's Tishabov, it's particularly perfect. Tishabov two days away. And the guy on the right is Admiral Sidney Smith. He's number two to Nelson. Nelson is the foremost British naval hero, and this guy was number two. That's pretty good. Okay. Nelson got killed at the Battle of Trafalgar. Sydney Smith didn't get killed. He won a whole bunch of naval victories. He was a big deal, and a famous person once upon a time. Her father, Judas Montefiore, I'll tell you about him. Was his name was Lady Baron Cohn, and he was a well-to-do British Jew who got the navy contracts. Let's put it that way. He got the navy contracts, and so admirals and naval officials used to go in and out of the house on business. Now King Tishabov. Happens to be like now this time of the year, and. Judith Montefiore from her young age, way, way from, just, just naturally, that's what, that's what her predisposition was. And she wrote, later on, she said once, on the fast, I'm going to read you what she describes over there. On the fast day for the destruction of Jerusalem, we were sitting, me and my sisters, as is customary, in mourning attire, on low stools, reading the lamentations of Jeremiah. That They were millionaires, so they lived in a mansion, but as Tish above, and just the ladies, they don't go to shul, so in the house they sat down in a little stool, and what are you go, going to do tissue? Suddenly the servant entered the room, closely followed by Admiral Sir Sidney Smith and several other gentlemen. So, you're sitting there with socks. <laughs> and, you know, on a like in sitting shiva, and a, it was embarrassing. My sisters became somewhat embarrassed, not liking to be thus surprised in our peculiar position. But I quietly kept my seat, and when Sir Sidney Smith asked the reason for being seated so low, I replied, This is the anniversary of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is kept by conforming Jews, Orthodox Jews, as a day of mourning and humiliation. The valor exhibited by your ancestors on this occasion, sad occasion, is no doubt well known to you, because you probably read Josephus. Sir Sidney and the other gentleman present, and I, uh, she said that to you, you and Sir Sidney and the other gentleman, and I feel sure, she said, you will understand our grief, that it was unavailing to save the holy city in the temple. Now, even though our ancestors were brave and fought bravely, it didn't work. But we treasure the memory of it as a bright example to ourselves and to following generations how to fight and sacrifice our lives for the land in which we were born and which gives us shelter and protection. And this is remarkable to read this right now in the middle of the Gaza campaign on Erev Tishabeth. And she says it like this Sir Sidney Smith and the other gentlemen, she said, appeared to be much pleased with the explanation I gave them they observed it was a most noble feeling which prompts the true patriot for, to mourn for the brave who have fallen on the field of battle for their country and that the memory of the struggles of the Jews of Palestine to remain the rightful masters of the land, which God apportioned to them as an inheritance, would ever remain not only in the heart of every brave man in the British realm, but also in every right-thinking man in all other parts of the world as a glorious monument of their dauntless valor and fervent devotion to a good and holy cause. Yeah, I wish he was in charge of the BBC today. <laughs> huh? And, and I, I'll tell you again, he was, he's a very, you can Google him, he's a very uh, famous uh, British admiral. So that's who Mrs. Montefiore was when she was young. You can imagine that if they, were, they didn't have any children, and uh, by the time you know, we're middle-aged, they were in middle age, they realized they're not going to have any children, and, and they had money you know, beyond what they ever need, and so they devoted the rest of their lives. He lived to be 100, she, she died before that to uh, what we said, to call Israel. You understand? They could, they could afford to do it. And so wherever Jews were in trouble, he made it his business to go try to help them. And on a number of occasions he was successful, and on a number of occasions he was not successful. And this made him a hero throughout the Jewish world. It's well known, if you went to Russia 100 years ago, before the First World War, especially in the in the, uh, the non Hasidic areas, they said, it's very famous, they said there used to be in a regular Jewish home there's always three pictures on the wall the Vilna Gone, Rebizal musical the Spectre, the Kovnerov, and montefiore You see? Folk heroes. And, um, and this is why. Okay? This is why. Now, I've got to tell you this story simply because <laughs> it's a good story. And I heard this many years ago with somebody. Uh, her father was Levi Baron Cohn. That won't mean anything to you, but if you're a very, very close student of the Shalots and to to Behuda, it will be, he's the guy to ask the umbrella question. Okay? How do you know you can't use an umbrella in Shabbos? Doesn't say so in the Talmud, right? Doesn't say so in the Shulchan Aruch. The answer is this is a responsa of Cheskel and Nota And if you look there, you'll see that there was a certain guy named Levi Baron Cohn, who was from Amsterdam, who moved to London around 1770, 1780, thereabouts, something like that. And he was, the Jews in London were notoriously lax in halachic observance. And you know the old quest, the old line. As in fact, the shallow is this trafe, you know, don't even ask whether you can do in London, it's always raining. And so everybody said, yeah, of course you can take umbrella. Why not? And what are you doing? You're not lighting a match, you know? What, what, what's wrong with that? And this guy showed up and he was from Amsterdam, even more religious older, so he says, all He right, said, how do you know you couldn't do an umbrella? Maybe it's something on like Shabbos. And they just just shut up. Well, he wrote a letter, a to the leading rabbi of that time, but asking Buddy, was uh was Ezekiel and the Prague, the Node Yehuda who was a very famous and very authoritative type of person, and he wrote back a whole famous response, which says, no, you can't do it for various reasons, right? Whether the umbrella's open or even when the umbrella's closed. And, oh boy, you know, all hell broke loose because the whole community was angry at him. Who asked you, who, you know, why don't you go to the local rabbi? Who do this? You frumak, you nut, you know, you, you make everybody's life miserable, you're a real jerk and all the rest of it. And they ostracized him. They ostracized him. And he wrote to the interview, the story, he wrote to the interview, he says, what'd you do to me, you know, you can't me messed up over here, and, you know, my business is going bad because nobody wants to do business with me, and my daughters are a few years away from getting married, you know, from their teenagers, nobody's going to go, I'm going to have shidduchim problems and all the rest of it, and uh, there was no answer. But a number of years went by, and uh, the French Revolution broke out, 1789, at which point the British... Quadrupled their navy because of a fleet, and then they needed somebody to supply the navy. Country. He got the he got the, uh, the the contracts. In which case, zillionaire, right? If you're if you're supplying the British navy during the Napoleonic Wars, that's that's the contract you want, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, for sails and for 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 cannon and for especially food and things like that, you know, ships got to run on something, doesn't it? Um, I remember the British had something like eight hundred, nine hundred ships. It was crazy, you know, the number at that time, and. But Shaduchim he had a real problem because nobody wanted to go with the girls because the father's crazy. From, you understand? And so, what do you, you know, so what, what do you do? Uh, and the girls were complaining, and it's a famous, The girls are complaining. What's going to happen? This and, that, and the other, you know, the, the ripe old age of 17, 18, You know, we're going to die in nineteen, twenty. And uh, so he did the classic thing. He said, you "Won't marry a local boy to marry a greener, a, a refugee." That's, a, that's an old Jewish, you know, tactic. You married somebody who just landed off the boat. Uh, they didn't know better, they didn't bring the local prejudices, so she married this guy who couldn't speak English very well, just got off the boat from Germany and saw the rest of it Nathan Mayer Rothschild. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's one, but, said, but, but that was Hannah, Connor, the older one. She was religious, but not super crazy religious, like the sister I just read to you, Judas, you, know, who was really, from you see the way, Sydney Smith. And then they say, "Who's going to marry her?" He had five, bro- he had four brothers, but she said, like, "She's too firm for them." They're Orthodox, but they're not that. Old, so you know, she's too firm for them. And what are you going to do? So she ended up having the same thing. She had to marry another greenhorn, Italianese. Uh, you know, the guy who moved from Livorno to Montefiore. <laughs> so the guy ended up marrying one daughter, married Rothschild, the married Montefiore is billionaires by the by the standards of of today. When you had a million pounds, you know what that was in those days compared to now. It's like a billions. So is it? So, Montefiore, when he went on his missions, as in this one, 1840, he brought his wife, that's bringing very heavy, very heavy artillery, let's put it that way, in the Jewish sense. Now, um, Cremio, Adolf Cremio, in Paris, even though his government wouldn't support him, even though countries against him, he said, I'm putting together a French delegation, and we're going to go there to argue, like Emil Zola, you know, we're going to fight against this injustice on its merits, and I'm not scared of anybody. And neither of them spoke uh, Arabic and Turkish. So Montefiore brought his interpreter, and Cremio brought his interpreter. Solomon Monk, who was actually guy, yeshiva uh, guy, spoke like 15 languages, he was a very famous scholar, he was in the Académie de France. Uh, so he's the guy who, by the way, found the original copy of the Vuchem, if that means anything. Um, and Montefiore had his rabbi, Louis Loh, who spoke 37 languages. This is the truth. Okay. He was in Pressburg Yeshiva and all the rest of it, but he needed a job, and he ended up with Montefiore. He was his local rabbi. He went with him all, on all the trips. So between the two of them, they had the whole Middle East covered, and um, they, went, they went over there. Uh, they landed in Egypt, of course, and Montefiore landed on a British battleship. You know, in a um, and St. Kremit came on a French ship. They were greeted like saviors, you can imagine. So the Jews in the Middle East were terrified that what happened in Damascus shouldn't spread. It's very easy, drop a bat. It could spread elsewhere. And what's gonna happen in Egypt and what's gonna happen in Palestine and all the rest of it? And Montefiore was particularly popular because he was religious, they always knew that. When he came to the show, and his wife used to go up to the ladies section in Cairo in, in Alexandria, and she was like to the Jews, she was like a queen. You understand? He used to run to kiss her hand. It was like a big deal. And here comes the best part. Mehmed Ali, the ruler of Egypt, was saying like this: What is going on over here? Why is Palmerston sending a Jew with a battleship? To talk to me about, it can't be but this, because this is the Middle East conspiracy theories. You understand? This can't be, because Paul was actually gives a darn about a couple of stupid Jews who were beat up in, in Damascus. It's got to be, this is a British plot to displace the French and outfox the Russians, to take over Egypt and knock me out, and then put my son in, no, not my son, my second son, too soon against Abraham, and then put the, the Turks back in, and he conducted a whole bunch of business over here, You know, and every time Montefiore said, no, this is only up and up, this is just the British government expressing humanitarian sympathies. That doubled and tripled, you know, for the Egyptian government. They they couldn't believe it. You understand? So they got scared out of their minds. This is all some kind of huge British plot. Now, they weren't totally crazy. 40 years later, England did seize Egypt. Not in Palmerston's time, but in 1880, 1882, (laughs) the the British did grab Egypt. You understand? And a few years before that, the Israeli grabbed the Suez Canal. So it wasn't totally crazy, just on this occasion it was. You understand? So Montevideo came back by a lot of, uh, what's the right word, the appearance of power, if he didn't exactly have the substance of it. Uh, and uh, the delegation requested, and by the way, the two Jews didn't get along at all. I mean, I don't want really to go into this, but you know, he's a French Jew, he's an English Jew. And Cramio kept saying, let me do the talking. Montevideo said, you're a Frenchman, you don't count for anything. You know? He was like a Jewish Palmerston. You know? He says, just stay out of the way. Uh, the delegation requested that the investigation should be abandoned by the Damascus authorities and be transferred to Egypt, to Alexandria, for judicial clarification or that the case be judged by European judges. Let's put it this way let's try them without torture. How about that? Is that a radical notion? <laughs> How about that? Um, this request was not granted as war was imminent between Egypt and Turkey. This is all happening in the middle of the 1840s when the war did break out between Mehmed Ali and others, and the British Navy ended up bombarding AKO on behalf of Turkey against uh, Egypt. I can't even, uh, I'm, I'm not even going to go into greater details than that. It's, it's incredibly complicated. It's a Charles Napier and, and all this stuff. Both Mehmed Ali and the French wish to prevent an investigation into the events in Damascus, because it'll reflect badly on Egyptian administration and a play in the hands of Palmerston, who wants to say that the Egyptians should get out of Syria and Palestine and put the Turks back in, because the Turks would be more fair in their judicial approach. So therefore, it's all a plot. The Jews, whose first concern was the release of their co-religionists, decided to accept the simple liberation of the prisoners within a judicial declaration of innocence. To so Basi, Mehmed Ali said like you're worried about the 50 Jews? Here, pardon, go, go. Get out of here. And Montefiore uh, actually was very epiffed. He said, wait a minute, pardon. Pardon means they did it. You know, saying? Pardon means they did it. And he had low, his interpreter said, read it exactly. And uh, in the end, it was explicitly stated deliberation was an act of justice and not merely a favor granted by the ruler. But Montefiore said, yes, but a pardon, people aren't going to look at that. and say, a pardon means you did it. You understand? Deliberation orization on August 28th, and the prisoners who were still alive in Damascus were saved. Montefiore was very bitter, and he said, I don't want to take a pardon. But Adolf Premio. Correctly said, like this, he says, "You can't be like that. There are people suffering. Get them out of there." You're know saying, "Notice, get Pollard out of jail. Then worry about it. You, you, can't, you can't, do that." And he wasn't wrong. So Montefiore accepted it. Determined, however, to drive a stake through the heart of the blood libel, Montefiore himself sails to Istanbul with his wife and Louis Lowe. There's a new sultan there. The old guy died in 1839. 16 years old, Majid who's desperate for British support. After all, he's fighting against Mehmed Ali. And he's got the Russians on the other side. Also, he has his conspiracy theories. Why is Palmerston sending a British guy, a Jew, to Istanbul for something to happen in Syria? This must be a British plot to detach Syria from the Ottoman Empire and give it to you know, all the rest of it. The fertile imagination of the Orient was in in full steam, okay, which which helped Montefiore. And um, look, it was the Middle East, you know. And so after initial difficulties, Montefiore secures a firman, a, 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 a decree from the sultan, officially stating that the blood libel is false, prohibiting making it a charge in the future, and clearly implying, implying I say, that Damascus prisoners were innocent. So he didn't get a, a declaration they were innocent, but look what he said. He said, for the love we bear for our subjects who permit the Jewish nations, the innocence of the crime against them is, is, to, is evident to be worried about and tormented a consequence of accusations which have not the least foundation of the truth. So That's, in effect, saying that whoever was arrested and tortured in Damascus, it was false. Okay, That's what it says, in effect. And that's as good as you were possibly going to get. Now, if you followed me two lectures ago, Suleiman the Magnificent issued the same declaration back in the 1500s. Didn't stop this from happening. This is a trouble in Jewish history. You go, you go, and you work, and you get your declaration, all the rest of it. But an hour later, or a year later, it's not worth anything. You want a, you want a sad example? He had a ceasefire back on Friday and a minute later it wasn't worth anything in Gaza. You know that. This is the Middle East. This is, this is what you're dealing with. Montefiore returns to tri- in triumph to London. Right? He was hailed by, he was received by Palmerston and Downing Street and oh, he was this, he became like a god all the rest of it. And, uh, and I can tell you right now that uh, you want to see the difference. The French government backed Rettemontont, their, their guy, uh, His version gets out, too. The confessions were circulating widely. Of course, they omitted the part that it was taken by torture, but they were circulating widely, and they're quoted in the right wing and the ultramontane press. And plenty believe that the Jews did it, but they used their money to suppress the truth. What happened? A bunch of Jews got caught killing somebody for matzah in Damascus. The big Jews got scared. They sent Montefiore with the the endless pocketbook, and uh, he bribed everybody. And, uh, you know, he forced Mehmed Ali and the Sultan of Turkey to issue but it's not really true. A wave of anti-Semitism sweeps Western Europe after the triumph of Montefiore, the London Times, right? the, the, uh, let alone the British, I mean, the, the French, the German press, all you can just imagine what happened. Which means, God bless Palmerston. He was the only guy who stood against this. And I can tell you right now, the British consul in Damascus supported the French. He said the Jews did it. You understand? The Jews did it, and Mon- and Palmerston fired him. <laughs> you understand? And he said, "What did I do wrong?" He says, "You abused a, a metaphor," because <laughs> he said, "You know, the uh, Montefiore dropped his heavy money bags or something like that in, in Alexandria." He said, "You abused the metaphor. You're fired." You understand? So this is it's it's quite a, a business, and I can tell you right now, um, the uh, Jews of Damascus, uh, who were saved, they made a Kiddush cup, a becher, a, a goblet. And uh, you know, very you know how they do in Damascus, very, very finely wrought and all the rest of it. And look what it said there. In Hebrew and English. Who was our friend when the world was our foe? So it's a funny world we live in. You understand? It's a good thing they had this guy over there. Because otherwise the history books will all say like this the Jews did it. Go figure. Now, um, the Arab world Regularly, now I'm going to switch to the present time, unfortunately. The Arab world regularly refers to the Damascus confessions even today. The story I just told you is very well known in the Arab world, except with the Rati version, obviously. The Jews did it, and they're guilty. Okay? And they just use their money to suppress the truth. Um, there's a book, uh, which is very popular, written by Old Man Assad's number two, now we're dealing with Assad Jr. But there was Assad Sr., the guy that wiped out Hamas, Hamas, I should say. I wish he wiped out Hamas. He said, the, you know, in other words, the, the big massacre guy who nobody said anything about. Uh, Hafez al-Assad was the dictator, and president, if you want to call it that, of Syria from 1970 to 2000 when he died. So his number two guy was the defense minister, Mustafa Klaas, who unfortunately is still alive. And uh, among other things, and he's a real jerk, and, and among other things, uh, he published a whole book called The Matzah of, of Zion. Let me just read you a piece of it. In 1983, and I just got this off the line, this is so easy, unfortunately, Klaus wrote and published a book called The Matzah of Zion, which is a treatment of the Damascus affair of 1840. After all, Syria's capital is Damascus today, you see? It repeats, the ancient blood libel that the Jews used the blood of murdered non-Jews in religious lit- ritual, such as baking matzah bread. In this book, he argues that the true religious beliefs of the Jews are, quote, black hatred against all humans and religions, unquote, and that no Arab country should ever sign a peace treaty with Israel. Klaus reprinted the book several times and stands by its conclusions. I mean, this is a guy whose hands are dripping with the blood of Syrians, you know. Uh, following the book's publication, he told Der Spiegel, which is the famous German newspaper magazine, that the accusation against the Jews was valid, and this book is a historical study based on documents from France, Vienna, and the American University in Beirut. That's true, except they're the documents of the protocols of the interrogations. They just leave out the porn. At this point, we beat the heck out of the guy, but now he said this and this and this. Regarding the book, Colossus stated, I intend, through publication of the book, to throw light on some secrets of the Jewish religion, based on the conduct of the Jews and their fanaticism, at both Eastern and Western civilizations, through Jews in the ghettos, only after recognizing their destructive badness. He also claimed that since 1840, every mother warned her child, do not go far from home, the Jew may come by and put you in a sack to kill you and suck your blood for the Maks of Zion. In 1991, the book was translated to English. Thanks a lot. Egyptian producer Muniradi subsequently decided it was an ideal Arab answer to Schindler's List and later announced plans to produce a film adaptation of Maks of Zion, which is online. The book also reported a scientific basis, served a scientific basis for renewal of the blood libel charge in international forms in two thousand and one. No, the United Nations forms. Al Ahram, which is you know the leading uh, the New York, the, the, the New York Times of Egypt, his Al Ahram published an article called "A Jewish Matzah Made from Arab Blood." I repeat, a Jewish matzah made from Arab blood, which summarized the matzah of Zion book, concluding that the best you'll drive to need, k n e a d Passover matzah with the blood of non-Jews confirmed. The in the records of the Palestinian police, where there are many recorded cases of bodies of Arab children who disappeared, being found, torn to pieces without a single drop of blood. So you notice, they, they, yeah, well, this is the law machine working out. Back in Palestine, before 1948, when the Palestinians and Jews were living there, every once in a while, well, a kid would disappear, and when you finally find the body, it was empty of blood. So what happened? Oh, now we know. You see? The most reasonable explanation is the blood was taken to be needed into the dough of extremist Jews to use their to be vowed during Passover. This is at the New York Times of Egypt, this is repeated in uh, United Nations uh, forums, this is repeated in the General Assembly of the United Nations, and we don't live in a time when somebody says, oh, what you say is beyond, beyond, it's over the top, it's unacceptable, and all that kind of liberal sort of talk that we use to suppress speech uh, doesn't work because the average won't listen to any of that. And so they continually spread it all, all around, uh, and by the way, uh, this class is a behemoth. look at this, read it. Can you you can't, I can't, I can't say so. Class is also boasted in National Assembly, that's the parliament of Assyria, atrocities committed against Israeli soldiers, that's POWs, fell captive in the Yom Kippur War. I gave the Medal of the Republic, Hero to a soldier who happened to kill 29 Jews. He did not use the military weapon to kill them, but he used the axe to chop their head off. He then devoured the neck of one of them and ate, from, ate in front of the people. I'm proud of his courage and bravery. He actually killed himself, for he killed, actually killed by himself, 20 Jews by count and crush now by the way you notice that he sucked the blood out of them he, you understand that this, uh, I mean you don't have to be Freud to figure this one out but it doesn't matter facts get in the way of the narrative <laughs> right? now there is one good thing about Klaus uh, he, he referred to Arafat very uh, uh, effectively <laughs> you know there's no love lost among them he's not the son of one who is the son of 60,000 which is quite a deal Now, uh, the Arabic world, the Islamic world, eats this stuff up. And it's become a basic component of our culture. You hear what I just said? A basic component of our culture. That's not a phrase I just tossed out. Consider what I just said. In America, the Gettysburg Address is a basic component of American culture. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? The Constitution, the Declaration of Independence... And a couple other things like that are basic components of American culture. I'm even willing to be popularistic and say Coca-Cola is a basic po- 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 culture. What's a basic co- part of Arab culture? The Jews steal babies. They, uh, you know, puncture them. Take out the blood and use it for some right? that's, that's, that's a basic feat. No, this is not the protocol design. That's something different. That's another I'm not That's not what I'm, I'm talking about. Right? Let's, let's uh, watch out for the uh, mixing of the categories over here. You know, get your libel straight. The uh, right? No, 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 no. No, I'm, I'm serious. No, but understand what I did. I'm simply trying to educate you a little bit. Listen, it's the week of Tisha B'Av, so this is not fun stuff. But when else can you talk about the seven to nine days? When Israel deals with the Arab world, with the Muslim world, you just have to understand what these other people believe. When they look at Jews, especially the younger generation who've grown up, they're just, you know, brainwashing this. But you don't even have to be a younger generation. In the 1840, Adolphe Thiers, who was the prime minister of France, believed the London Times believed in this sort of thing, you know? So, Karl Bukhomer, if you're just a regular Muslim growing up in the Muslim world, this is taken as a fact. Excuse me. Okay? Um, so to eat this stuff up, after all, it happened in an Arab city, the Damascus affair. It's not some tale from William of Norwich or, or, or uh, Simon of Trent, you know, all the way out in Europe or uh, the Kadoshi Blois. That we speak about in, in medieval France it happened in Damascus, right? It was a Christian who was killed, but it happened in Damascus, and the Jews did confess. As for the torture, this is denied or regarded as irrelevant. Now I'm going to show you something very disturbing, but you should just know it. All, and I'm sorry. All I had to do was go on Google and say like this: Jews blood libel Arabic or something like that. And let's look, at, let's see if it works. <laughs> I'm just going This is instead of, I don't know, the TV shows, you know, Saturday Night Live or something like that. But this, this, is what, this is what popular stuff over there. And it, you, you know this is a tiny piece of a long series. You can tell that, right? If you really care, which I'm sure most of you don't, you can take the trouble and find the whole series online. It's a long, evolved sort of thing. With English subtitles. What son of a gun put that one in? Okay? And it's not considered weird or a horror show or like a Dracula. It's taken as a basic fact. This is who the Jews are. You understand? So, uh... The Damascus Fair is, is still with us today. Um, the Arabs and the Muslims will never pay close attention to what I'm about to say. They will not stop ever repeating it. Okay, and so look at this. As you know, President Obama, as some other president, recently goes to the Pesach Seder every year. Yeah. To you and me, that's innocuous. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to the <laughs> you go to Chinese New Year, you go to this, you go to Italian Day. And he's got Jews on the staff, as we all know. Nothing wrong with that. They have their, i don't know when they have to the say it's not on the or not. But you know, they go to Passover Seder, and after all, with Obama and others, you can make it the holiday of freedom and all that kind of stuff. So what's the big deal? Oh my God, the Arabs see this, and he's, he's, Obama eating matzah. Get it? I'm trying to show you get out of your little thing in Baltimore and put in the glasses of the majority of the people of the world. I'm sorry to say, or a significant portion of them, and they're going to see something else. And what do you see over here? Read it, right? You can't see it. It says in May of last year uh, at the Middle East Media Research Institute revealed an Egyptian politician, called something, can't see it, said the following during television interview. It's well known during Passover. They take the masses called the blood of Zion and they, and they, they take a Christian child, slit his throat and slaughter him and they uh, never forego this, right? He said this when he saw the picture of Obama, you understand? It's on Egyptian TV. In addition, the website belonging to a Palestinian organization, which is started by Hanan Ashrawi, Okay, which by the way, the New York Times, I just happened to throw this in. If, if you care to, you can now go. I mean this. You can go, Ari showed it to me. He said, You can go on a New York Times sponsored trip in the Middle East, uh, especially Israel and Palestine. New York Times, and uh, the scholar in residence is not Rabbi Friend, it's Hanan Okay? That's, no, no, because they want to give you a balanced picture. You <laughs> they want to give you a balanced picture. So he says, Hanan Ashrawi published an article in March 2013 criticizing Barack Obama for holding a Passover Seder, saying, does Obama, in fact, know the relationship, for example, between Passover and Christian blood, or Passover and Jewish blood rituals? This is last year, mind you, two pesos you know, two Pesach ago. Furthermore, much of the chatter and gossip about historical blood rituals are real, and not fake, as they claim. The Jews use the blood of Christians in the Jewish Passover. So, I tell you again, you see somebody going to a peso Seder, it's like innocuous. As we all know, in America, the Pesach Seder is the most widely kept Jewish ritual, and it's also the one, for better or worse, which has the largest number of non-Jewish participation. Yeah. There's a ton and ton of people who have relatives, friends, this, and the other, and the Pesach Seder, after all, you know, like it's for freedom, whatever you want to do. A lot of people find the story of the Exodus very gripping. It'll be less so as time goes on, if the Arabs get their way. Right? They'll say, like, where'd you buy the matzah, <laughs> you know? said, I pop in a puppet, you know, so who's that? You know, right? it's, it's, It is what it is. Just Tom him that's all I need to hear. <laughs> so the blood libel is being spread virally, virally as we speak. It will be part of the world in which our children and grandchildren grow up, unfortunately. That means that we will have to familiarize ourselves with the information I've shared with you uh, over the course of this lecture series, incomplete as it is, because I'm sorry to say that, you know, look, I'm just talking about one, the Damascus affair tonight, and, and my time is soon up. Uh, you know, the tisa Esler affair, and the Hilsner affair, and this and that and the others, all kind of famous stories. It's, it's too much. Right? It's too much. They will have to come to terms with the fact that every time one of these accusations is made, it gets traction. There's a famous case that I'm not going to talk about, the tisa Esler affair, in which in the 1880s in Hungary, they accused the Jews of, kill, of killing this uh, Christian uh, girl all the rest of it, um, it's a long, very involved story. And they confessed, and this and that. One of the Jews said he did it, even, and all the rest. Eventually, they found the body three-quarter decomposed, which had no holes in it. you know, And that, that's what dismissed the case. But, the, uh, but not really. A Hungarian journalist in 1966, under the Communists, visited that town of Tisza Eslar. That's uh, 80 years later. And he says he's still got a lot of bad, bad uh, uh, feelings about the Jews there. In other words, they did it. This is the nature of it. You put it out there. And it gets traction, maybe in among, among everybody, but it'll always get among somebody. The silver lining in the cloud, perhaps, with this I'll conclude, um, ironically, is uh, a famous essay of Achara the famous Zionist maskilk intellectual. A person very anti from as we would say today, all the rest of it. But uh, and as a matter of fact, the founder of modern cultural Zionism, of, of secular and atheist uh, Judaism. Uh, but he was a very good writer, and one of his most famous essays is called Chatzinachoma which is translated as a little consolation. Not a lot of consolation, but a little consolation. He wrote this in the 1890s, right? And what he said was like this. Um, and this is good to know, particularly today, when all the news is against us, so any normal person reads the news, Israel's terrible. After all, can everybody be wrong? The New York Times, the Baltimore Sun, the, the CNN, the, the British, the Europeans, the Asians, everybody says, you know, only the Jews say that. Can they all be wrong? And he called Nechama and because he he's like this. You know, the average Jew growing up today, you hear all this stuff, you believe it. After all, as I said before, you sound, you know, this definition of insane if I say I'm the only normal person in the room, you're all crazy, what does that mean? Right? Now, but then we have a shtickle Nechama. Why? Because he says, you know, and he wrote this in 1890s, he said, you look at the blood libel, which at that time was raging in Russia. We know this is totally baloney. It's a cock-and-bull story. Didn't, there's nothing to it, zero, and the whole world believes it. So you see, it is possible to say, I'm right, the whole world is wrong, and you're actually right. So we have to be able to take, as I said before, a certain uh, reassurance from the constant uh, survival of these absolute lies. As they say, listen, we're not talking about a question whether somebody cheated somebody else now, or somebody that, you're talking about taking a child and uh, p- poking them and getting out blood and baking matzah with them, uh, that's just a, a total fantasy. right? So how can so many people believe it? The olim is a golem, the masses are acid, the public is it, and, and you as a Jew get used to the fact that it's totally possible that the whole world is full of it. And you're right. And he wrote this, not from a religious perspective. It is possible Blood libel proves it, proves, it, proves it so. He even says that uh, if it continues th- 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 just listen to this. Uh, if you, if you, he's writing this about Jewish self-doubt. And Blood Bibles, things in the 1890s, when at that time, the Russian Jewish intellectuals, I repeat, the Russian Jewish intellectuals, were all wondering, there's so much anti-Semitic remarks about the Jews, about how bad they are in so many ways, and we have our faults. Um, and they suck it in, and it becomes very self-destructive, become a self-hating Jew. And so he writes like this, he says, this state of things that it continues, can do is great mortal harm. There is nothing more dangerous for a nation or for an individual than to plead guilty to imaginary sins. When the sin is real, there's opportunity for repentance. By honest endeavor, the sinner may purify himself. But when a man has been persuaded to suspect himself unjustly, how can he get rid of, How can he rid his consciousness of guilt? Remove the beam from your eye, they tell us. And they would obey, but they cannot because the beam is not there. See, so it's the position of a monomaniac who, for some reason, has come to believe that a heavy weight is hanging from his nose and cannot be removed. And so the people, for example, and there's too many of them, Jews, I'm talking about Jews, who say Israel's a moral monster, we're the, the, the criminals in Gaza, you know what I'm talking about, and it's all our fault, and the Jews are, are Nazis, and, uh, and worse, and the whole Israel, that, that whole business. How many young people get taken? A ton. right? And is, besides everything, it's unhealthy, because how are you ever going to get out of it? They'll never be, since they're doing something imaginary, they can never be brought to see the truth. You understand? They cannot be, 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 be sought to, 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 to the truth. If they think that Israel is a moral monster, they're going to spend the rest of their life going uh, you know, mea culpa for, for the Jews because they're moral monsters. And, and it's chimerical. I mean, it doesn't really exist. Hence, we end up with what Lenin called the useful idiots, which you see in all the demonstrations as Jews. I understand there were a bunch in Baltimore, but they're certainly all over the world. Um, sometimes the useful idiots are are, uh, the the Torah character guys, you know, the extreme went to Ahmadinejad and all that. Uh, People don't like to say it. Sometimes it's Satmar it's useful idiots. Um, And they think they're, you know, they think they're doing well. They are what you call palgin and dibura in Talmudic talk. They say, well, the blood libel is not true, but Israel is a monster, that part's true. You see? Um, What's the result? Just what Echanan was talking about. You know, you you end up where Jews have a self-hate, and they have to go the extra mile to, to justify the hate. And we find the worst enemies come out of, out of your own ranks. So the only, uh, look, I wish I could say that the, the, the truth will set you free. You know, when you know the facts, uh, you know, it'll change it. But they don't agree to the facts. That's what I just told you. Uh, they won't see it the way I just described it over here. They'll say, I'm twisting it. And when I say, what about the tortures, all the rest of it, they'll, they'll finagle the way out of it. Because there's no such thing as proving truth through argument. All you have to do is get a better arguer. I'm not the best arguer. You get somebody smarter than me, and they'll out-argue it. And, uh, and that's where the world is standing today. So I, I end this series, uh, doing, you know, just before Tisha B'Av, on a sober note. And uh, you know, uh, what we did in the past, we talked about the Crusades, and that happened long ago. Um, when it comes to something like the Aleelist down the Bible, it did happen long ago, but it also happened today. And unfortunately, it's around till tomorrow. We have to uh, take the little that I gave you and now do some, a little bit of work on your own and educate your children and others about it so that when they're confronted by this, and I'm sorry to say that they will be confronted by this in one place or another, um, they'll be able to answer back. Otherwise, the average person wouldn't be able to tell you something as basic as what I just said. Imagine in Baltimore or New York or London or, or South Africa, somebody go up to the street and say like this. I have here the confession the Jews made and to the prosecutor in Damascus in 1840 and they don't know it was a, under a bastinado and the torture. They don't know they took their kids and tortured them in front of their eyes. Because that part you leave out, you see? So if you don't take the trouble to familiarize yourself with the totality of the facts, you're always going to be paying the price for ignorance and you cannot be Jewish today uh, as an ignorant person. That we see all around us. And on that note, I close and we shall have an easy fast.